Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live episode of The Yield. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldtreet. And today, I'm joined by Daniel Eberhard, who is an entrepreneur who co-founded and sold a wind energy company and has since founded Coho, the leading Canadian challenger bank. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. Uh, I got to first, uh, of course, make mention. Uh, you kind of stole my style here with the, uh, the black glasses. So uh, I hope you know it doesn't go unnoticed. I think it's like a kit that you send away for when you're in the tech world, you know? Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, I, I broke my other pair. So uh, I think we're, we're going to go to dark shaded glasses for today. Sure. Perhaps maybe to start off, uh, you could introduce yourself and kind of give everyone a, a good sense of your background and sort of what you've done so far in your career. Sure. So as you kind of mentioned, um, co-founded a wind energy company out of university that was analogous to folks that are familiar with solar city, but sort of a, a smaller, obviously solar city for wind. And it was building kind of micro wind turbines, selling them privately to farmers all over central Canada through that process, got into industrial scale wind farm development and ended up kind of building a couple of wind farms. And then that was subsequently acquired. And like a lot of folks, uh, you know, whenever you have an exit, you're, there's a big chunk of luck that goes into that. And then we ended up getting back into the renewable energy for, for one more try on, I don't know if you, this is, there's, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the photos of like flare gas at night, but just an interesting thing to Google at some point, but we were trying to capture that flare gas, which is a waste product of the fracking process. And that one didn't work. And we, we spent kind of a year on it and then the the uh, kind of market dynamics changed and the political dynamics changed and uh, the economics no longer worked. And so that was like a pretty good hard lesson for, for me to kind of like operate more in markets that I felt like were meritocracies. And, and then I moved into what is now Coho. Um, so Coho is what's known as a, a challenger bank. It means um, technology enabled uh, leader in the space in terms of how do we, and trying to do two things. How do we give everybody a great financial foundation how do we democratize access to the best financial products? Launched in 2017, have raised about 130 million and um, the, the leader in the space in Canada, and but still feels very early and, and learning new things every day. So that, that's, a, that's a bit about me. Well, that's great. I, and I have to ask, so Coho, I mean, is that is that based on the, 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 the Canadian hockey company as far as the uh, <laughs> genesis of the name? So the short answer is no. Uh, so maybe, maybe it is, but it's opportunistic. So I, I wanted something <laughs> that was short and phonetically simple. 
So Coho was, a, as you say, a hockey equipment company. And then that company was acquired by Reebok and then kind of shelved. And folks that, if you remember when you type something in Google and you misspell it, it auto corrects your word to what you think it is, to what Google thinks it is. Now, in the case of Coho, there was sufficient search history that that didn't happen, but there was also no SEO competition. So it was like a very mercenary decision about hijacking SEO juice on one day, on day one, excuse me, that put us on the path of Coho. Then it just ticked the other boxes. So uh, that's actually incredibly uh, interesting, especially when you think about, you know, how kind of SEO is, has really taken over, you know, how people think about positioning themselves, you know, in the public domain on the internet. It's certainly sure. something that I think uh, more than anything else, historically, when you go on Google, you don't realize just how much goes into each one of those results, especially from the companies who are trying to either, you know, bid for the ad advertisement space or even those that are trying to do it maybe more organically. Totally. I mean, today we get 30, 35% of our customers organically, not necessarily because of that, obviously, but, but it is like a huge... Uh, downward pressure on our cost to acquire and those kind of things. So it's it's important for sure. In your intro, you kind of mentioned challenger bank. And I think it's kind of becoming a little bit of a trending word. You think about, you know, certain areas where innovation is really happening. A lot of them are, I would say, lack of anything else, you know, a little bit disruptive, but also really trying to pioneer kind of a new space. It seems like often with the challenger banks, they're really actually trying to attack the incumbents, right? The largest financial institutions in the world. Why do you think that is as opposed to maybe some other areas where, you know, you kind of shy away from maybe going after the incumbents and trying to create, you know, at least your own, your own path in a certain sense? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a couple things, right? The first thing is like the, the thing that makes it hard is also the thing that makes it very valuable. Right. And so if you can participate in, in, in that market share that the incumbents have historically had, that's a really great outcome. I think, I think people often kind of frame it as us versus the incumbents. I, I don't think that's true. Like banking is not zero sum and, and nor are markets. And so I think there's some folks that the, you know, the challenger bank model benefits a lot. And I think there's certain other folks that can and should stay with banks because, because they're going to be better served there. I think that the, what is a natural outcome of the challenger bank model, which is, you know, typically folks who are heavy on tech and, and light on deposit taking and some of the hardcore banking, although that varies from model to model, you know, banks just have so much infrastructure associated with serving accounts. And so when it comes to especially lower and middle income folks, there's often like a, a lot of misalignment between the banks and those users, because the banks have this need to make these accounts profitable. And very often that's a function of the cost structure and the operational infrastructure that they have to, to underwrite against these folks. And so you know, challenger banks have the opportunity to massively reduce the cost structure, massively increase customer alignment. And I think that's a, that's a really good outcome for, for those users who typically, you know, are, are, are underserved. Yeah. So, so, so to that point, I mean, one, when you say underserved, maybe we can start there first. You mentioned quite often banks are really best structured to deal with those with large deposit bases. Obviously there's other products that they can sort of extend to them as well. And the overall customer becomes more profitable. Who are some of these underserved, you know, individuals or groups that you guys are kind of thinking about? I mean, so if you just like, if we just think about the average Canadian or the average American, right? Overwhelmingly, these folks are living paycheck to paycheck. Overwhelmingly, they don't have more than $5,000 in deposits. And so a couple of things that, that make that like a, a really difficult situation for these folks. So one is, and, and I'll just speak to, to Canada, because that's obviously the market we're familiar with. So if you bank at one of the big institutions in Canada, which have a lot of regulatory protection to make sure that they stay that way, and you have less than $5,000, they're going to pay you usually 0.01, maybe 0.05% on a savings account. Now, two-thirds of Canadians have less than $5,000. It's also true of Americans. So in our mind, 
that's fairly synonymous with like a poor tax. Um, if you, if you, with these institutions, which your, your parents bank with, and you've grown up with, you're making 0.01%, that's going to get outpaced by inflation 200 to one, or maybe 500 to one in these environments. Right. And so that narrative is also true of where these folks overwhelmingly pay the majority of the bank fees is, is either low income folks or high income folks who are getting private banking. You could look at investor products and you could say, most probably 95% of investment portfolio should be, you know, relatively identical, which is around like, you know, a lower fee structure, especially for, for folks who don't have a lot of, a lot of assets, which should optimize for like a lower fee structure and indexes. And so I started this company because my mom is one of those people who, you know, didn't have a lot of money and she was in all of these really expensive investment products and, and that kind of didn't make sense. And so that sort of catalyzed me on the path to Coho. So, you know, I, I mean, I think all of those things are, are opportunities for alignment and improved customer experience. So, so maybe you could start off just by talking a little bit about Coho, right? I, I you know, I think a lot of people probably initially thought that you were uh, acting, you know, at least primarily as a bank, but it seems though you guys offer other services as well. Maybe you could kind of uh, walk us through some of those. So the, the way that Coho works is we partner with a bank, the bank takes those deposits and we sit on top of that infrastructure and, and do kind of everything else. Um, and so we do a couple of things. The, the core product experience is predicated on obviously a, a better UX, no fees, and we give real-time cash back on every transaction. But the, and then the products that we're, we're super interested in are credit and, and payroll. And so on the credit side, we launched a product this year called Credit Builder. And one of the things we found in the market was the historical narrative around building credit was you go get a credit card. And if you have a bad credit score, or if you don't want to use a credit card, there's relatively little options. And then, especially for folks who need credit, they end up in kind of the, the, the payday lending space, which is not a good space for anybody to be. And so we launched a credit building product. Um, it's seven bucks a month and it just like helps you build a credit profile and improve your credit score by like giving you nudges on the right behavior on a line of credit that we extend to you. So there's no debt. There's no like, I shouldn't say there's no debt. There's no like debt spirals. You just pay $7 a month monthly fee. And we kind of automate a lot of this infrastructure for you. We also give folks a, a free advance on their payroll if they use us for direct deposit. So what we found was lots of folks are, uh, when they are running out of money, it ends up being about an $80 bill on average. And so we will advance you hundred dollars for free on Coho if you use us for direct deposit. That's like the the debt side. And then on the payroll side, we have things that let you earn. Uh, we have partnerships with payroll providers. And if you are one of the, the folks who are in this ecosystem, you can actually call up to 50% of your wages in advance. And you can do that on a daily basis if you want to. So especially for folks living paycheck to paycheck, waiting two weeks to get paid is super problematic and super expensive. And so we, we're trying to like, trying to effectively attack that and bring the, the time between when you work to the time when you receive that benefit from like two weeks to daily. And then ultimately, like you can imagine a future where that should be effectively real time. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, you know, obviously Coho's kind of sits on top of a lot of these, these uh, financial institutions and banks, but I guess the first question that comes to mind is, you know, how are you guys uh, not just layering fees on top of what the banks are uh, already charging or how do you guys kind of partner to reduce some of the other friction that's kind of inherent just with having a bank account? Yeah, well, I mean, so first of all, I think the the infrastructure is fundamentally different, right? We don't have branches, we don't have any of that kind of stuff. Like today, we have about seventeen hundred to two thousand accounts per employee at Coho, and the banks have about a ratio of about one tenth that, so they're about two hundred accounts to to the employee. And our infrastructure theoretically should scale to twenty thousand accounts, right? And so as you think about, we don't 
Whereas banks have to make a certain amount of money on these lower income users because it costs them so much to serve them. We don't have that pressure and that same kind of misalignment purely as a function of like cost base. And that's not just like branches, but it's also our technical infrastructure is obviously much more advanced, you know, cloud, multi-geo, that kind of stuff. And then the the second thing is that the banks are really good at holding deposits securely, and we should we should absolutely use that. But that's kind of a commodity, right? And so we don't taking and moving money is like a, a pretty low cost behavior, frankly. And then by building like some of these other features like credit building and stuff like that on top of it, we think that we can sell products to users or cross sell products to users, but we think we can do so in just ways that are much more aligned with what a good outcome for a user is. So essentially, do you guys aggregate all the deposits, you know, essentially on your platform, essentially you act as a single account to the banks themselves? Yeah. So that that's a, that's a good insight. So yeah, like basically all these deposits sit ultimately with one of the major banks in Canada, and then you overlay a ledger on this account infrastructure, you know, that says customer X has $70 and customer Y has $2,000. And you can just, um, because of that, you have a lot less oversight, not less oversight. You have a lot less infrastructure required versus like a one-to-one account ratio. You have a one-to-many account ratio. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so, you know, again, it seems as though a lot of these like incumbents within the space, as you mentioned, they've got all this legacy infrastructure. They're serving many different needs and maybe, you know, a wide spectrum of clients for which their model doesn't fit all well. Um, I guess my next question is just kind of around, how do you think those banks evolve, knowing that obviously there's a lot of other uh, competition coming out there for some of those lower deposit customers? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's the key question to all of this. Right. And I think uh, at least we've seen in Canada, there is very different go to markets. You know, I think some banks will build their own infrastructure and we've seen like JP Morgan um, has built a, a, their own challenger bank called Marcus. You know, the banks have got together and built a product called Zelle for, for payments, which is doing really well. So I think like banks will for sure respond the, I guess that the nuance is there's two nuances. One, it, it certainly varies from bank to bank, whether they want to do a build partner buy model, or, you know, perhaps they, they don't think this is a threat, which there's definitely those folks too. The other nuance is that these, these banks are not monoliths. And there is a lot of, if you think about a credit card department, a credit card department is measured every quarter in the public markets predicated on how much credit card debt and how much credit card fees it sells. And so there's a lot of inertia around the existing machine working at banks. And so, you know, that there's competing dynamics within these banks and, and I'm, I'm, it's unclear to me which one will win out, but it's certainly good for customers if, if the market evolves and, and they get more competitive on some of these dimensions we're trying to win on. Yeah. So, so assuming like, you know, let's say that you guys ultimately end up being extremely successful, right. And you continue to grow and scale. Um, how do you see yourselves being different from the banks? Let's say 10 to 15 years from now, assuming all else as well. Like yeah. you ultimately, again, you know, get your banking charter, but, you know, start uh, handling deposits, you know, again, in-house on your own. And then how do you guys kind of prevent yourselves from going public and starting to have some of those same metrics, maybe on behalf of the credit score that you guys are talking about? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question, right? And it is. And so I think that, so we have a couple heuristics internally. And so, so first it has to start with a fundamental belief that you can build a more profitable business by not having a short-term zero-sum relationship with your customers. And so that means you know, we believe that we can build what we call long-term positive sum, which is maybe bank speak, but like before we launch a product, one of the internal heuristics we get to measure ourselves to, which is very hard for a bank is, would we be proud to recommend this product to somebody we cared about? And we have a number of those kind of decisions in the way that we look at our credit revenue distribution and internally that we look at to say like, are we proud of this? Is this a good product? And 
you have to create the incentive structures inside the organization to inoculate your organization from, you know, optimizing for short-term profit maximization on a per customer basis, because we believe two things. One, these customers are going to grow with us for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And so like, that's, that's the juice that that's the value of the business. And two, by competing for customers in this way, it is going to be very difficult for banks to compete on these same dimensions because banks typically operate with each financial product being its own line item. It doesn't look at what other products you use. It doesn't subsidize based on other products that you use. And so there is a ton of inertia in this machine that's going to be really hard for banks to compete on. Yeah. And then do you think, you know, banks just start divesting from some of maybe their endeavors to kind of get slimmer um, and kind of, again, maybe even move further up market and sort of shed some of those lower, you know, I guess maybe the question is also the Q and a one is also kind of like, you know, a little bit along the lines of how banks, you know, evolve to compete with you. And then also to that, um, how much do you think banks actually will find it to be an incentive to perhaps, um, you know, no longer serve some of those lower deposit households um, and sort of either partner with you and or eventually acquire you even to, to serve as a, you know, a different proxy for that segment of the market? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the, that's the case, right? Is, is some folks, uh, some banks say, you know, yeah, we'll never build the front end as good as Coho can and nor should we try. And those are banks that we want to partner with because there's lots of stuff that they're really good at that we don't frankly want to be good at. So like, it's, it's important that we, we don't think about banks as a monolith. We think of them as a market, even though it's a fairly centralized market, they all have different points of view as a bank and also within those banks about what they're going to do. And so what I would say is I don't think banks are okay seeding market share. I think they are okay recognizing that they will not be competitive in this market without partnering. And then this is their wedge into participate with that market. That makes a lot of sense. You spoke a little bit earlier on about, you know, your, your um, sort of credit score product, right? I, one, hoping you can talk a little bit more about that and some of the pods that you do to help people improve their credit. And then yeah. also maybe before that, so you can just talk about what some of the most common pitfalls are for how people kind of end up maybe with a lower credit score, maybe than than what they should based on their own actions. Sure. But I mean, uh, it's so look, I, I mean, I've had a bad credit score before and, uh, been denied credit cards and I'm, you know, financially quite solvent. And my own situation was, uh, you know, that I disagreed with a cell phone company about a bill that I should, should be charged. And, and it was, like, I think there was merit to that. And as a result, like of not wanting to pay it, I, you know, they reported to the bureaus and unless you're willing to put hours and hours into this stuff, you just, you take your, your credit score takes it on the chin. And so eventually I caved. I think people arrive with bad credit scores for a variety of reasons. I think people arrive because they're new to the country um, and they don't have a credit profile, which is which is called thin file. Um, I think people arrive at credit scores because they're not good at paying their debts. Like they might be, you know, sort of quote unquote financially irresponsible, or they might just be like financially vulnerable where like a lot of folks, they live on uh, every now and then they need credit and you get a couple bad things that happen in a row to you. And, and that puts you into a, a bad credit situation. And so, you know, the, I, I think people arrive at a variety of reasons. And frankly, a saying somebody has a 600 credit score, it's a fairly blunt read on, you know, did they, are, do they have a 600 credit score because they're new to the country because they've missed their last 20 payments or because they're like financially vulnerable and super exposed, right? And those mean really different things. And so, and the way that our credit score works is like, we give you a line of credit and then we automate the optimal withdrawal of that line of credit. So you can take, you know, you can take, you can withdraw on all of it, or you can withdraw on 30% or you can withdraw against zero. We recommend 30%. And so if the line of credit is $750, you'll withdraw $250 and then you'll 
pay that back at the end of the month. And that to the credit score, to the credit bureau reads like responsible credit behavior, which is that you consistently withdraw, that you consistently utilize and you consistently utilize about a third of that. And then you consistently pay it back. And this is behaviorally indicative of like people who have the right credit behavior such that they can, their credit score should improve. And so I'm, I'm curious to that, you know, when you guys are taking on new clients, what level of credit score do you guys take into account? Obviously you mentioned some different criteria and different nuances to each score, but you know, is it open for all, or do you guys have a process on the front end to kind of screen through some, some, some new uh, customers? It's open for all. And so everybody uh, can get credit building. You know, one of the things that we find fascinating is, and one of kind of the hooks is if you are t- borrowing a payday loan, um, the typical default rate on payday lending is like 15 to 20%, which is why they charge such egregious fees and usurious fees. Our default rate when folks use Coho for direct deposit is like, it's, it's much less than one-tenth of that, right? And so we have like, let's call it 10% of the default rate that, that payday lending does just because we know when your paycheck's coming and we know that you have a, a repetitive paycheck. So that allows us to lend money to folks much cheaper as a function of the insight that we have into who these users are and how they're using Coho and all that kind of stuff. Do you like sort of payday. automate the process where you kind of interject yourself, you know, from the deposit to the time when someone could actually, and again, assuming direct deposit in that instance, but before someone could actually get access to that, that paycheck? Um, so we, yeah, we do. And then there, and then the notionally what's happened is you're, you're kind of graduating, like nothing is a better indicator of your ability to repay credit than historical repayments of credit. Right. And so if you start small, you can keep your credit losses small, and then you can lend folks more and more over time. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the direction we're going with Coho. Very interesting. So, you know, the other thing that kind of comes up, we've had a couple of uh, guests come on throughout the course of the, of the year and, and certainly, you know, banks as they currently exist are obviously at least uh, perceived to be under some existential threat due to, you know, blockchain, digital currencies and the like. What, if anything, do you guys see as far as a threat for sort of your, how you guys currently operate and, and what do you guys think kind of about digital currencies overall relative to how people are sort of normally operating? So I think, I think we're still super early in the digital currency market. I think it's still very much a tool of speculation and uh, an asset class that makes sense for lots of folks, some folks, but you know, it's, it's not really solving the problem yet that we care about, which is like day-to-day everyday folks getting access to their money user earlier, getting better financial foundations, those kinds of things. That said, I am, what is true of the banks and that they have like largely a regulatory protectionist moat, and in some cases, monopolistic moat. It's certainly true in Canada and to some degree in the United States. I'm a believer in markets, man. And so I, I think like the, the pressure that cryptocurrency is putting on the international banking system around speed of transaction, simplicity, transparency, fees, all these kinds of things, as a result, both outcomes will get to a better place. So, so people tend to frame a lot of these things as like binary one or the other and competing forces. I'm sure that in 30 years, we're still going to have banks and they'll probably look differently. And I'm sure in 30 years, we're going to have decentralized currency and it will probably look different. And so I think that these are like complementary forces from a market perspective that, that are both necessary to like, frankly, keep the other side of the market honest. Oh, very interesting. You know, certainly, you know, like when we think like, you know, again, um, certain cashless payments and the like, I think, um, you know, people are very excited, but we always make the joke that most people feel with Zelle alone that they're already kind of doing a uh, form of digital uh, transfer. So it's certainly something that we always, we always try to talk about. 
Well, one thing that I'll add is like, I think we just, it's very natural, but we tend to have a very like domestic focus with our intuitions on this kind of stuff. Right. And so to your point, like you're mapping this to Zelle and stuff like, but if you're in Argentina, which has gone through hyperinflation six times in the last hundred years, well, like, you know, theoretically your, your savings are wiped out every 20 years in that country because of like inflation. And so, you know, having like hedges and if you're in Africa, like, and you don't have banking infrastructure and the the trust infrastructure that we have here, like there's a much greater use case there to just accelerate those folks into a trust-based system. And so that, you know, I I think it, uh, the, the applications vary country to country. How how do you feel then about the adoption in El Salvador to actually allow Bitcoin as legal tender? I think it's great. I think there's no, at scale, there's no reason why Bitcoin should not be a legal tender. Now you can make the case that it should be a different currency because of transaction costs and those kinds of things. But I, I think there's, it's, it's a massive, it's the, the market cap of uh, Bitcoin is bigger than a lot of the GDPs of countries. And, and those are fiat accepted currencies. So, it, I mean, it, to me, it completely makes sense. Yeah, no, it's great. So, you know, one of the things you talked about up front, when you actually gave some great insight, just as far as, um, you know, some of the, the influences outside of your control in starting and running and operating a business, particularly on the political side and, uh, you know, a, a topic as uh, controversial at times as fracking and, uh, and the energy space. But I'm kind of curious, you know, you, you had one, you know, coming out of, out of university, you had one really successful startup. You obviously had a more challenging endeavor. What were kind of some of the things that you learned along the way, just kind of really becoming an entrepreneur? But obviously, you know, I imagine you were riding high after your first success and, you know, the next one just kind of gives you some new perspective and, and you know, again, some different learnings. So the, the first one that like the, the big kind of thing for me is I think like a lot of folks and maybe it was a function of age or, or what have you, but I kind of insu- assumed that these big companies were like these impenetrable vehicles that were well run. And yeah, you know, I just like very naive. And then I got up close to them and there was an enormous amount of room obvious room to improve the way that these, these entities ran and like kind of anecdotally, you know, when we were selling the wind energy company, they should have outcompeted us. If they put an associate and and like an intern on this and like gave them the resources there, there's no reason we should have won those contracts. And they didn't, they they didn't have their eye on the ball. And as a result, like we had a short list a year later of nine of them trying to buy us. And so it was like, I, you know, I think dimension one is these are people look at these giants as though they're impenetrable and it's just, it's not, it's quite the opposite is true. I think thing too was like in in both companies was just luck matters a lot and people tend to have intuitions like they're successful because they worked hard or they're smart or they're gift. And like you need some foundational level of that, but certainly luck, I think sets the upper bound of a company. The way I think about it is luck sets the upper bound of a company and hustle kind of sets the the floor. And so, you know, I think those were, were two things. And then thing three was, it did not feel like a meritocracy when you're operating in those heavily regulated industries. Um, like there's no question that we should not be fracking. Not that we shouldn't be fracking. We could debate whether we should be fracking, but there's no question that we shouldn't be flaring off enormous amounts of gas, um, and treating that and not treating that for like a massive environmental liability. And, And it is, and there's a lot of interests which would have made that really expensive for folks to, to, basically cap those, those well, not cap the wells, but like cap the, the flare gas capture and actually use them as, and so it would have changed the economics. And, and so instead we just set it on fire. Yeah. Like your, your listeners should just Google North Dakota from space at night. It looks like a, it looks like New York. It's pretty wild. So you actually mentioned one thing that I, I actually always, I, I find really insightful, right? Like to you, 
um, any of these incumbents could have essentially, or these large companies could have spent minimal amount of resources and identified, you know, a gaping hole, if you will, of, of, of opportunity. But it's funny how it's not always so obvious to everyone else. And perhaps there are people internally in the company that suggested that they enter into these, these, these markets or where it may have been. But generally speaking, I think, you know, one thing that we found in our conversations, especially with, with those that have started their own companies is they really do identify things that seem so blatantly obvious to them that they can't understand how others don't see it. I'm just kind of curious, you know, what advice you'd give others to kind of seek out within their own lives or their own opportunities, like, you know, that unique perspective that really, you know, compels someone to kind of start a business or start a company and see things a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think, I think two things, the business you end up with will not be the business that you start with or very rarely is. And so I think a lot of folks like have some intuition that they have like some perfect insight, but really like motion matters way more than insight, you know? And so like getting to work on a V1 of this, like we didn't, we didn't set out to build large wind farms. It just kind of happened, nor did it set me on this path than trying to flare or any of these kind of things. And so like, there's just a fundamental huge watermark around people who are like willing to actually start and, and do it because not, not that many folks do to, to, I think really important parts and my kind of mental model for this stuff is like, I can push a certain amount as a person through like discipline, force of will, those kinds of things. But I also like the, the problem that we're solving with Coho, the problem we're solving with the wind energy company, I care about those problems. And so those problems also like pull me. And so I tend like my mental model for this stuff is like, I need to care about the outcome such that like when are we allowed to swear on this part? Whatever. When stuff gets hard, it allows me to uh, keep going, right? Because if I was solving a problem that I wouldn't care about or somebody else cares about that problem more than I do, then there'll be an advantage over me. That's kind of interesting. I mean, how much do you think passion plays a part in a a company's trajectory? I think a lot. I I think if you think about where the best folks in the world want to work, they want to get paid well to solve problems that they care about, right? And if you don't have both of those things, you're not going to be able to compete for the best folks in the world. And so it, it matters a lot from a competitive advantage. It matters a lot from your culture, your DNA, like the thing that ultimately gets you out of bed in the morning. It doesn't mean you don't have days that so don't suck. Of course you have days that suck, but I think it's a, a huge part of the story. And then the other thing that I'd say is what's, what's important in this, at least for me is like, look, coho might work. I've had one business that worked. I've had one that didn't like, there's a lot of macro events that go into the success of a company. But the one thing that I can control is just whether or not I care about the problem that I'm solving. And like, so whatever the outcome is, my hedge on my time is that like, no matter what, I'll feel like my effort was at least directed in the right way. Right. Like it's, then I can feel good about that. And if we go and continue to scale, that's great. And if we don't, but you know, it, it's hard enough to do this stuff, even if you don't care, like, especially if you don't care about the problem, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. So Dan, we're, we're about at uh, time. So I want to turn it over to you, see if you have any closing remarks or anything else that you wish that we talked about that we didn't get a chance to. Uh, I don't think so, man. This was a, this was a fun little rapid fire cruise through Coho and, and kind of how we think about the market. I don't think so. No, this, this any, any website you want to just plug uh, while we have everyone on, you know, again, you, you are currently, as I understand, only available in Canada. I'm sure there's some plan for uh, international expansion at some point. Yeah, we're we're probably a couple of years away. We're we're pretty focused on Canada, at least for we you know we think we're the market leader here, and and so we think we're gonna spend the next two or three years really locking up the market. So I mean, check out check out coho.ca. There's lots of great companies doing what we're doing in the United States that are you know operating at scale, whether that's Chime or Square. So check those out if, if those are interesting for you or or the clients that you work with. 
Yeah, great. Thank you so much. And to everyone else, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. To listen to other episodes of The Yield, please visit and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. For any questions on Yield Street, please visit www.yieldstreet.com or email us at investments at yieldstreet.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.